Welcome to A City for All, a podcast by Richmond for All. I'm your host, Quentin Robbins. We're here breaking down city and state politics bi-weekly. Make sure to follow us on your app of choice. There was one major piece of news coming out of city council this week. After over six months of delay, council finally passed the paper that would fund the design of a new Georgewith High School. Turning to school board, at the last school board meeting, we saw students, parents, teachers, and staff from the Richmond Virtual Academy turn out to prevent mass layoffs of their staff from the district. At that meeting, the board passed a resolution protecting the school, and Superintendent Cameras acquiesced that no teacher or staff member would lose their job. However, in the intervening two weeks, the superintendent sent out a letter to staff that stated that teachers would still have to reapply to their current jobs or to other jobs in the district. This is notably a violation of Richmond Public Schools policy, which mandates that reductions in force follow seniority, and any teacher or staff who needs to be transferred should not go through an interview process. At this week's meeting, Teachers spoke out again with concerns that they would not be guaranteed jobs that were commensurate with their current pay and job title. Many teachers believed that they were being retaliated against for speaking out to protect the program. Interestingly, moments before the board's discussion of the virtual academy, school board member Don Page walked out of the meeting, followed by members Cheryl Burke, Liz Dewar, and Nicole Jones. During that discussion, school board member Gibson motioned to instruct the superintendent to present a staffing and transfer plan for the teachers of the virtual academy at the May 16th school board meeting. The school board also voted to recognize the Richmond Education Association as the union for teachers and staff of Richmond Public Schools after their landslide victory, having won 99% of the vote. The next step is to begin negotiation with the district and get their first contract. It will be interesting to see if the superintendent is more likely to follow employment policy now that the union is in place. The school's administration also presented a plan Monday night to rezone River City Middle School, which has been desperately overcrowded since it opened in 2020. Board members Gibson and Rizzi brought up concerns about the lack of a funding plan and transportation for schools that would be welcoming new students from Southside. The initial motion to adopt the zones failed. However, board member Rizzi motioned to revisit the zones at the May 2nd school board meeting with a requirement that the superintendent present a funding plan for facilities and transportation. After the vote, Superintendent Cameras complained that the board hadn't passed the zones immediately. Member Gibson noted later in a statement that the school had been overcrowded since 2020 and that, quote, the current urgency could have been avoided had it been brought to the school board last year. End quote. In today's interview, we will be chatting with local community organizer Willie Hilliard. Willie is a Richmond native and lives in Richmond's North Side, where he has been a barber for over 20 years and serves as the president of the Brooklyn Park Area Association. In 2020, Willie was a candidate for the third district city council race and ran a people first campaign that rejected corporate money. He is an advocate for community led public safety initiatives and has been outspoken against toxic economic development deals. Take a listen. Hey, Willie, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Just jumping right into the questions. 
in 2020, you ran for third district city council. And I wanted to get a sense of what prompted you to run. Well, Quinn, I've been working in the community, I guess, in this lens of community engagement, probably for 15, 16 years or better, being very vocal and active in Northside and the city as a whole. But the representation over there was lacking. In the city, I felt it was lacking. And I felt like it was time to make a change and make a stand. And other folks wanted me to do it as well. Um, so that's why I decided to throw my hat in the ring. So notably during your campaign, you rejected money from Dominion Energy. What made you decide to do that? Well, I just don't believe that corporate dollars should be in elections, to be honest. Personally, I can't be bought. So, you know, I had to be very careful in my advisors. Let me know in the beginning that you have to be careful about the donations you take. And I know what Dominion represents, so I would never stand with them in any way. So, no, I wouldn't ever accept corporate money. Yeah. Just talking about, like, how that corporate money affected your campaign. How do you feel not taking it gave you freedom in certain policy areas or maybe relative to some of your opponents? Speaking for myself, you know, I didn't want the burden of whatever expectations corporate money has. I'm running the race that I'm running for myself and for the people that I represent. As for my opponents, I mean, I can't speak for their reasoning, but actions since the elections have shown, you know, you can make your own interpretations out of the actions that you've seen. I would say that money played a big role in the reason why I lost. I will say that the actual winner of the campaign probably spent five times what I did, but she only got 9% more votes than I did. So for every dollar that I raised, I got way more bang for the buck per vote than they did. You know, so again, I mean, corporate dollars, I mean, she won in the end, but what price do you have to pay? Yeah, I think that's a really important point, especially for progressives, because so often we're running campaigns in an environment where we may have the enthusiasm We may even have public opinion on our side, but we just don't have as much cash and it makes it very challenging. I think you saw something very similar in the the gubernatorial election most recently. And so I want to know what lessons you feel like you've learned and things that you can share for other progressives who want to run in the city. Well, I would say up until 2016, you know, the only thing I ever did was vote. I never helped anybody's campaign. I never knocked any doors. I never did anything but vote. Up until 2016, and then I started to get more active with the mayoral campaigns at that time. So going in, you know, I was a neophyte to a lot of stuff, um, and I learned that one dollars are important. But this was this election of 2020 was different than anything because COVID played a big part in it. No one knew what COVID was. No one had that experience. So for me, my biggest issue was organizing and actually getting to the people. You know what I mean? And being with COVID, folks wasn't opening their doors. I think a lot of folks voted for name recognition because I locked a lot of doors. I made a lot of phone calls that didn't get answered. So it was a learning lesson. I think the biggest thing I learned from that is being organized and building a strong team, which I did not have. A lot of folks think I ran a strong team. I think I ran a strong campaign, but I didn't have a strong team. And that was first and foremost. But getting your message out and being consistent in your message is number two. You take it in your order as you choose. But those are probably the top two things I learned in that was the messaging. And I think the messaging carried me, you know, even though the fact that I was lacking in the resources, you know, the messenger carried me. But being that I didn't have the team that I needed, the message didn't get out 
as much as it could have. Yeah, I think it's always part of the tension for progressives where we have the enthusiasm. We have very often the public opinion on our side, but we don't have the cash to pay the team, you know, and like the staffs who a lot of the time, especially on the municipal level, campaigns are run with volunteers. And so being really intentional about that is definitely, I think, some of the toughest work that has to happen to be successful in, a, in an environment where you have few funds. <laughs> But shifting a little bit, so there's been some unfortunate news coming out of Northside. There's been a, a handful of murders that have, have happened down on Brooklyn Park Boulevard. Um, and you've been outspoken about the need for the city to intervene. First off, I want to get a sense of what you think is is going on in the neighborhood. There's a lot going on in the neighborhood, honestly. There's a couple of elements that, and they've been around, criminal elements, I would say that we've tried to address for years. And RPD hasn't been as proactive as they should have been or could have been. Back in 2014, 15, we had a walk and beat. They took the walk and beat off, you know, so there's no presence there. Now, we understand that police are not going to stop these crimes, but just to show your face and to show that you're out here and you support now businesses who are out here crying for your help, we need that show of face and we're not getting it. So what we get is, you know, something happens and the police show up, they post up, they clean up, and then they leave until the next time. You know, despite how much we cry for more help and more assistance, we're just not getting it. And of course, now we understand that they're low in numbers, you know, in the ranks, but that's kind of always been the excuse that they can never get there. But I don't get it. I mean, but in other parts of town, there's a strong presence, you know, and we don't, we don't get anything over there. And we understand we've been in dealing with this. This is part of being on Brooklyn Park Boulevard and being on that corridor, unfortunately. We've learned to deal with it. But at the same time, we expect some help and some communication. And that's what we're lacking right now. The businesses have reached out to council and RPD numerous of times about these issues. Just in the last year alone, no answers, no replies, nothing. We get nothing. And I don't get it. Yeah, so I want to kind of pull on this thread a little bit. Just thinking more about like what the city can do both in the immediacy and sort of systemically in the neighborhood. There have been some proposals from various activists and activist groups, including most notably Risk, that have been trying to pressure city government to enact some alternatives to policing. And I just want to kind of get your thoughts on what do you think are like the foundational things that the city needs to be doing to make sure that our communities are safe. We go to the societal ills that really causes this, which is crime, poverty, poor education. You know, we have to start there. Housing, lack of housing, weak family structures. I mean, we have to attack those causes at the roots where they are, especially with our education system. That's first and foremost. And we can understand and we see how our education system here in the city is struggling. I think that there are a lot of groups in this city who really can do some work and some effective, powerful work, but they're not getting the resources. In my opinion, the city and the state always seems to give assistance to these certain groups. It's always the same groups who really don't do anything. We just saw that Senator McKeachin secured a million-dollar grant for VCU to study gun violence. What is VCU going to study in gun violence? What can they actually do? I mean, we, we're, we're tired of studies. 
But you could have taken that million dollars and put it in several groups that are actually out here boots on the ground and doing work to get some effective change. And I think that's part of the problem, you know, is that the bureaucrats just continue the same cycle. You know, as long as they stay over there, they're fine with it. But they'll do, you know, little shows of face, like I said, getting a million dollars for BCU to do a study. I think something that you brought up that I want to investigate we know that we have a housing crisis in the city. Most of America is, is facing a housing crisis. It's my belief that city leadership are not necessarily doing everything they can to stem the tide. But first, I want to get a sense from you about how Northside has changed. We know from the census that demographics, both racially and economically, have shifted pretty substantially. And I want to get a sense from you what effect you feel like that has had on the community. Well, I mean, just like most of the other city, we know it's been gentrified. I'm born and raised in Northside. And to be honest, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to afford to live in Northside. The real estate has gotten ridiculously high. And being a housing advocate myself, I'm just trying to help a lot of the older families that I've known to stay in place because it's hard and it's getting hard. And even with the demolitions of public housing, like there's no real plan for folks to go anywhere. They're not going into these new developments. It'll be a minuscule number. But again, we go back to the same corporate dollars of the city giving these developers these incentives when they say they're going to add X amount of affordable housing units to whatever development they build. But the problem is their definition of affordable housing is different from the everyday man. So, again, it's not affordable. We need community benefit agreements. We need all kinds of types of inclusionary zoning as well to put these people on point and let them know you have to do this and make it affordable for all because we're about to lose just a big population in the city because there's nowhere for them to go, you know, so they're going to have to leave the city when public housing is eventually torn down. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at... Um, Gilpin Court. And, you know, the, the city is doing this big reconnecting Jackson Ward project, which I think is a big farce. You know, they're building a bridge park. But, you know, when I go into the meetings, my thing is, how are you really connect Jackson Ward? How are you connecting this side of the bridge to the other side? If you're not connecting the other side, being public housing with the resources that they're getting on the other side of the bridge, then it's a wasted effort. And we know that's not what's happening because the plan is to tear them down. And I go into these communities and let it be known. You know, everybody was praising the fact that the city is going to spend $8 million to renovate Calhoun Center. That's not going to be for public housing residents. They will not be there to benefit from that. So people need to start looking at some of these things. And, you know, we're just trying to make people more aware so that they can better their situations because it's going to come. And unfortunately, they're going to be evicted. Yeah, I think during the, the Navy Hill fight, one of the talking points that came out of the city to boost the deal and try to sell it to the public was that they were offering, quote unquote, subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. They said that it was targeted at 80% of right. the AMI, right. but the stitch was it was 80% of regional AMI. Right. And we know that Richmond's area median income, AMI, is much lower than the county's. Mm -hmm. And so these apartments were being offered at essentially market rate and the developer was getting a subsidy to build them. So you've a few moments ago mm -hmm. sort of talked about a slate of potential remedies for some of the, the housing problems that we're seeing in the city. 
what's coming up sort of very soon adjacent to to Northside is the the Diamond District project. And I want to know your thoughts on what you think folks should be calling for, what you hope to see come out of the process for the Diamond District, especially if we're talking about something like a community benefits agreement. I would hope to see some real housing come out of it, but I think most of this is going to be a retail thing. I'm I'm curious to see just how this plan is going to unfold as compared to the Richmond 300 plan, because I don't think it's going to be the same once it is rolled out. But I'm very concerned that a lot of people are going to be moved out. I mean, VCU has already been moved out of the warehouse, the ABC warehouse already. So the baseball stadium will not be there, you know, where it was supposed to be going. But again, if if there's not an affordable housing piece in there somewhere, it's just a wasted effort Mm -hmm. of another big box, you know, development that's not going to really do anything for the general people in the city. The housing, again, that they're they're purporting to build is going to be substantially costly. And I just don't think it's going to benefit the general city. But folks are desperate to see that area developed. So we'll see. I'm I'm not that excited, let's say, (laughs) to see what it's going to be. Right. So thinking more on this economic development thread, so you were one of the folks who came out in opposition to the proposed casino. Why did you do that? Why did you come out against casinos? Well, I mean, casinos are predatory businesses, period. I mean, and even to the casino fact, it was just the whole outline of the deal and all of this projected income, projected revenue that they were putting out that are all projections. Again, casinos can only make money one way. And that's if you go in there and spend your money, you know. So, again, how can you say you're going to make $500 million in revenue? This city is not that big a city. And folks are not gambling like that. You know what I mean? At least I don't think they are. I can't speak for them because I'm not one of them. But, again, it was just too many projections. You know what I mean, we need facts. We need concrete numbers. But, again, it's a predatory business that helps no one. And most areas around casinos are crime-ridden. You know, and it was put in a place, I don't think that where it was supposed to go is an area that would be attractive. Let's put it that way. That it would actually get the people there that they need to make the money they need. So again, it's just be another big box development of taxes that we're going to have to pay on. Yeah, I mean, couldn't agree more. So now we know that we're very likely to see a second casino referendum after every member of city council, except for a second district representative, Catherine Jordan, voted to give the casino operator a second bite at the apple after losing. You know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? What are you, you know, how, how are you thinking about the fact that the casino was defeated and now city council is coming back and saying, just under a year later, we're going to do it all over again? Well, I mean, whether you support the casino or not, the issue I had with it is that there was a blatant attack on the democratic process. The vote was given. The vote was taken. The vote was counted. It was defeated in the story. But council, being in the casino's pockets, weren't satisfied. So somehow here we're back at it again. And again, this is just an attack on the democratic process. So you're telling us that our votes don't count. That's ultimately what you're saying. Yet here we are struggling to get people to vote. And we tell people, man, your vote counts. Yes, yes. We're all the detractors who said my vote doesn't count. Why I need to vote? You know, and here we're trying to get people to vote. But you, you basically just told us that our vote didn't mean anything. So my thing is, if we recall in that, why can't we recall all the council elections? 
for all eight of them who decided that they wanted to see it back on a referendum. Why can't we have a recall on your elections? Because I'm sure some of those would change now if they got a do-over. I mean, we're throwing out the democratic process, so why not? Let's do a do-over for everybody. So you have also been pretty vocal online about what you perceive as some of the failures of the Virginia Democratic Party and some of the statewide candidates who ran on the Democratic ticket. I think you said pretty explicitly there needs to be a shakeup in the party leadership. Unfortunately, we did not see that. I want to hear from you what you think went wrong in 2021, why you think Youngkin won, why you think we lost the House, and then what you want to see change in the Democratic Party of Virginia. Okay. I would say, point blank, DPVA, the Democratic Party of Virginia, is solely responsible for us having Glenn Youngkin as governor to this day. They forced Terry McAuliffe down our throats. We did not want Terry McAuliffe as governor. He was a great governor the first time. You know, it's all on your opinion, but, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Didn't say we needed you a second time. I honestly believe that one of the Jennifers, and you can take your choice, would have won. I think that either one of these black women would have inspired people to actually vote. And I think that Terry McAuliffe didn't. So a lot of folks just saw the same old, same old, and decided not to vote. So we ended up with Youngkin. I think part of the problem is that the Democratic message was Trump. It wasn't about Youngkin, it was about Trump. You put Trump in his race. Trump still gets a lot of love, unfortunately, especially in this state. So they played the Trump card way too hard, way too long in trying to compare Glenn Youngkin to Trump. And his supporters or the supporters of Trump made sure that they got out. But Democratic Party wasn't inspired to vote for Terry McCauley, you know, but we did. And, you know, personally, I've gotten tired of the candidates that you tell us we're supposed to vote for. You know what I mean? Just because you say we're supposed to vote for this guy, you know, okay, we do it. When we know in the back of our minds, this is not the right person. So a, a definite shakeup in DPVA's leadership has to happen because if not, the next Republican, and I'm mighty afraid it's going to be the attorney general, is probably going to be the next governor of the state if we don't change. And I had an issue with, I guess, a lot of them not supporting each other. You know what I mean? Because certain state politicians decided that neither one of these black women could win. So they decided that we needed Terry McAuliffe. And here we are now with a person who has national aspirations. He doesn't want to be governor of Virginia. Not really. That came too easy for him. So he's, as you can see, he's all out in national spotlight now. He has other plans and it's not Virginia. But this is where we're at now. Yeah, I think um, from my perspective, the reason that Terry McAuliffe was pushed so hard, and we know by, you know, members of the Democratic Party leadership, is that he serves a particular corporate interest. It, you know, he's a safe Democrat. He's not, he doesn't make us feel uncomfortable or something like that. But he, I mean, I think they believed that he could bring together the Democratic Party coalition while still maintaining corporate control over the Democratic Party. Um, We know that during his time as governor, he tried to cut corporate taxes. He encouraged the expansion of fossil fuel, natural gas pipelines in the state. And so I think it was a a mechanism to preserve an existing political class in the state. Agreed. Yeah, no, I want to, I'm sort of positing that. Like, I kind of want to hear, like, what your thoughts are on that, that kind of, like, 
frame on on how Terry McAuliffe got renominated. Yeah, well, again, I mean, you pretty much said it. Like I said, you can't say that he was a bad governor. I mean, he did some good things. He did, honestly. But his corporates didn't want to get behind these women. And it's unfortunate, I would just say it. I mean, what else can it be if it's not discrimination? Both of these candidates were highly qualified and highly capable of doing, I think, some real groundbreaking stuff for the state of Virginia. But corporate didn't want that. They want the same old, same old. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I think we're coming close to time, but I think we've uh, done a lot of analysis. <laughs> we, we've, we've thought pretty hard, but I think I just want to hear some about something in the city that's giving you hope. That's a hard one. <laughs> and I love Richmond. And I say that because as a kid, and I'm a lot older than, than you guys, when I was young, I did not like the city. The opportunities, especially for Blacks, was lacking. I mean, it's better, but it's still not enough. But I love the city now. I think there's opportunity here for some real positive growth, but we have to get the right leadership in place. And that's the problem. Virginia is a state that corporate dollars play a big role in every election, no matter how small or how big. But I believe in the people. And I say that to say, in the district that I live in, I think that Northside and the 3rd District is a bellwether for the city. And again, we look at that word gentrification. Outside of the, the high real estate prices, of course, and the taxes, I think the people themselves have been good people in that most of the people that I've met that moved into this community are trying to be community, you know, and they don't try to act like they know. I mean, they're willing to learn. They're willing to be a part. So I think that's a good thing. I'm just hopeful that I can stay in the third district, you know, because, again, we're being priced out. It's crazy, but we just continue to do the work. Uh, we've been working now. We started a group a few years ago, the Northside Food Access Coalition. So we want a grant from the state to run a farmer's market, which we will be kicking off hopefully next month um, at the Richmond Community High School site. And it'll be fresh fruit and vegetables that we buy from BIPOC farmers and resell it for them. And we will be taking SNAP and EBT, you know, as well for low income and just trying to get some fresh fruits and food into our communities. Um, so some of that work is the, some of the stuff that keeps me encouraged and keeps me going. Because some days are rough and it can be, you know, a little debilitating at times. Hmm. But there's a need and we have to address it. So I'm going to continue to do what I do. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, so our last question we would like you to recommend an article, a podcast, or a book. Okay, well, what I'm reading now is a book about the Virginia State Penitentiary. For some of you younger folks, I guess the Virginia War Memorial site used to be one of the most notorious prisons in this country on Spring Street. Virginia is a, is a prison state, unfortunately. And just reading some of the things that happened and how it turned into a prison state I think a lot of people need to read that, especially a lot of these young people that are in the streets doing the things that they're doing and thinking that there's other reasons behind it when the system is set up for that. I think anybody really should look at that and really understand where this city has come from. You know, it's still got a long way to go, but this uh, school to prison pipeline that has to be shut down, you know, again, we, we got to do something to stop the gun violence to increase the education, you know, within our system in our city and put those resources there 
instead of keep giving them to corporate entities who just play around with our dollars. You know, so those are some of the things. Awesome. But definitely Virginia State Penitentiary is another one is this book was just given to me actually about a year ago, Remaking Radicalism. Mm. It, it is a book about movements and all of the fights over the years. And I was just reading one a couple of days ago about white lightning. And this was a movement in 1971. Now, I told y'all I'm a lot older than y'all. So when we heard white lightning when I was a kid, that meant moonshine. Well, white lightning was a movement against drug addiction and the ills of drug addiction and drug use and drug sales. And even in 1971, you know, and this when this was written or when they were doing this, they were saying the same things that lack of housing, lack of education, poor jobs are the cause of narcotic use. And here we are 50-something years away and it's still the same. Nothing has changed. So what do we do? So those are just two. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Willie, for coming on. Thank you for having me. I hope uh, it was good for some of y'all. <laughs> it definitely was. <laughs> Willie Hilliard is a Richmond Northside native, a longtime community advocate, and the president of the Brooklyn Park Area Association. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Emily Robinson, Laura McCann, and myself, Quentin Robbins. Music provided by Eric Akers, a.k.a. Fat Milk Productions. A City for All is a podcast presented by Richmond for All, a member-run, member-governed organization working to make Richmond truly a city for all. To donate or join us, check out richmondforall.com. See you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>